Chapter Nine, Part One, of the Lost Girl by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alvina becomes a lay. Alvina wept when the Natchez had gone. She loved them so much. She wanted to be with them. Even Chicho she regarded as only one of the Natchez. She looked forward to his coming as a visit from the troupe. How dull the theatre was without them. She was tired of the endeavour. She wished it did not exist. The rehearsal on the Monday morning bored her terribly. Her father was nervous and irritable. The previous week had tried him sorely. He had worked himself into a state of nervous apprehension such as nothing would have justified, unless, perhaps, if the wooden walls of the endeavour had burnt to the ground, with James inside, victimised like another Samson. He had developed a nervous horror of all artists. He did not feel safe for one single moment whilst he depended on a single one of them. "'We shall have to convert it into all pictures,' he said, in a nervous fever to Mr. May. "'Don't make any more engagements after the end of next month.' "'Really?' said Mr. May. "'Really? Have you quite decided?' "'Yes, quite. Yes, quite,' James fluttered. "'I've written about a new machine and the supply of films from Chanticler's. "'Really?' said Mr. May. "'Oh, well, then, in that case.' But he was filled with dismay and chagrin. "'Of course,' he said later to Alvina, "'I can't possibly stop on if we are nothing but a picture show.' And he arched his blanched and dismal eyelids with ghastly finality. "'Why?' cried Alvina. "'Oh, why?' he was rather ironic. "'Well, it's not my line at all. I'm not a film operator.' and he put his head on one side with a grimace of contempt and superiority. "'But you are as well,' said Alvina. "'Yes, as well, but not only. You may wash the dishes in the scullery, but you're not only the char, are you?' "'But is it the same?' cried Alvina. "'Of course,' cried Mr. May. "'Of course it's the same.' Alvina laughed a little heartlessly into his pallid, stricken eyes. "'But what will you do?' she asked. "'We shall have to look for something else.' said the injured, but dauntless little man. "'There's nothing else, is there?' "'Wouldn't you stay on?' she asked. "'I wouldn't think of it. I wouldn't think of it,' he turtled like an injured pigeon. "'Well,' she said, looking laconically into his face, "'it's between you and father.' "'Of course,' he said. "'Naturally. Where else?' But his tone was a little spiteful, as if he had rested his last hopes on Alvina. Alvina went away. She mentioned the coming change to Miss Pinnegar. "'Well,' said Miss Pinnegar, judicious but aloof, "'it's a move in the right direction, but I doubt if it'll do any good.' "'Do you?' said Alvina. "'Why?' "'I don't believe in the place, and I never did,' declared Miss Pinnegar. "'I don't believe any good will come of it.' "'But why?' persisted Alvina. "'What makes you feel so sure about it?' "'I don't know, but that's how I feel. And I have from the first. It was wrong from the first. It was wrong to begin it. But why? insisted Alvina, laughing. Your father had no business to be led into it. He'd no business to touch this show business. It isn't like him. It doesn't belong to him. He's gone against his own nature and his own life. Oh, but, said Alvina, father was a showman even in the shop. He always was. Mother said he was like a showman in a booth. Miss Pinnegar was taken aback. Well, she said sharply, if that's what you've seen in him, there was a pause. And in that case, she continued tartly, I think some of the showman has come out of the daughter, or show-woman, which doesn't improve it to my idea. 
"'Why is it any worse?' said Alvina. "'I enjoy it, and so does father.' "'No,' cried Miss Pinnegar. "'There you're wrong. "'There you make a mistake. "'It's all against his better nature.' "'Really?' said Alvina, in surprise. "'What a new idea! "'But which is father's better nature?' "'You may not know it,' said Miss Pinnegar, coldly. "'And if so, I can never tell you. "'But that doesn't alter it.' "'She lapsed into dead silence for a moment. "'Then suddenly she broke out, vicious and cold. "'He'll go on till he's killed himself.' and then he'll know. The little adverb then came whistling across the space like a bullet. It made Alvina pause. Was her father going to die? She reflected. Well, all men must die. She forgot the question in others that occupied her. First, could she bear it when the endeavour was turned into another cheap and nasty film-shop? The strange figures of the artistes, passing under her observation, had really entertained her, week by week. Some weeks they had bored her, some weeks she had detested them, but there was always a chance in the coming week. Think of the Natchekee Tawaras. She thought too much of the Natchekee Tawaras, she knew it, and she tried to force her mind to the contemplation of the new state of things, when she banged at the piano to a set of dithering and boring pictures. There would be her father, herself, and Mr. May, or a new operator, a new manager. The new manager! She thought of him for a moment, and thought of the mechanical, factory-faced persons who managed rights and the Woodhouse Empire. But her mind fell away from this barren study. She was obsessed by the Natchekeetawaras. They seemed to have fascinated her. Which of them it was, or what it was that had cast the spell over her, she did not know. But she was as if hypnotised. She longed to be with them. Her soul gravitated towards them all the time. Monday passed, and Chicho did not come. Tuesday passed, and Wednesday. In her soul she was sceptical of their keeping their promise, either Madame or Chicho. Why should they keep their promise? She knew what these nomadic artistes were, and her soul was stubborn within her. On Wednesday night there was another sensation at the endeavour. Mr. May found James Houghton fainting in the box-office after the performance had begun. What to do? He could not interrupt Alvina, nor the performance. He sent the chocolate and orange boy across to the pear-tree for brandy. James revived. "'I'm all right,' he said, in a brittle fashion. "'I'm all right. Don't bother.' So he sat with his head on his hand in the box-office, and Mr. May had to leave him to operate the film. When the interval arrived, Mr. May hurried to the box-office, a narrow hole that James could just sit in, and there he found the invalid in the same posture, semi-conscious. He gave him more brandy. "'I'm all right, I tell you,' said James, his eyes flaring. "'Leave me alone.' But he looked anything but all right. Mr. May hurried for Alvina. When the daughter entered the ticket-place, her father was again in a state of torpor. "'Father,' she said, shaking his shoulder gently, "'what's the matter?' He murmured something, but was incoherent. She looked at his face. It was grey and blank. "'We shall have to get him home,' she said. "'We shall have to get a cab.' "'Give him a little brandy,' said Mr. May. The boy was sent for the cab. James swallowed a spoonful of brandy. He came to himself irritably. "'What? What?' he said. "'I won't have all this fuss. Go on with the performance. There's no need to bother about me.' His eye was wild. "'You must go home, father,' said Alvina. "'Leave me alone. Will you leave me alone? Hectored by women all my life.' Hectored by women, first one, then another, 
I won't stand it. I won't stand it. He looked at Alvina with a look of frenzy as he lapsed again, fell with his head on his hands on his ticket board. Alvina looked at Mr. May. We must get him home, she said. She covered him up with a coat and sat by him. The performance went on without music. At last the cab came. James, unconscious, was driven up to Woodhouse. He had to be carried indoors. Alvina hurried ahead to make a light in the dark passage. "'Father's ill,' she announced to Miss Pinnegar. "'Didn't I say so?' said Miss Pinnegar, starting from her chair. The two women went out to meet the cabman, who had James in his arms. "'Can you manage?' cried Alvina, showing a light. "'He don't weigh much,' said the man. Went Miss Pinnegar's tongue in a rapid tut-tut of distress. "'What have I said now?' she exclaimed. "'What have I said all along?' James was laid on the sofa. His eyes were half shut. They made him drink brandy. The boy was sent for the doctor. Alvina's bed was warmed. The sick man was got to bed, and then started another vigil. Alvina sat up in the sick room. James started and muttered, but did not regain consciousness. Dawn came and he was the same, pneumonia and pleurisy and a touch of meningitis. Alvina drank her tea, took a little breakfast, and went to bed at about nine o'clock in the morning, leaving James in charge of Miss Pinnegar. Time was all deranged. Miss Pinnegar was a nervous nurse. She sat in horror and apprehension, her eyebrows raised, starting and looking at James in terror whenever he made a noise. She hurried to him and did what she could, but one would have said she was repulsed. She found her task unconsciously repugnant. During the course of the morning Mrs. Rowlings came up and said that the Italian from last week had come, and could he speak to Miss Houghton. "'Tell him she's resting, and Mr. Houghton is seriously ill,' said Miss Pinnegar sharply. When Alvina came downstairs at about four in the afternoon, she found a package, a comb of carved bone, and a message from Madame to Miss Houghton, with kindest greetings and most sincere thanks from Kishwagen. The comb, with its carved, beast-faced serpent, was her portion. Alvina asked if there had been any other message. None. Mr. May came in and stayed for a dismal half-hour. Then Alvina went back to her nursing. The patient was no better, still unconscious. Miss Pinnegar came down, red-eyed and sullen-looking. The condition of James gave little room for hope. In the early morning he died. Alvina called Miss Rowlings and they composed the body. It was still only five o'clock, and not light. Alvina went to lie down in her father's little, rather chilly chamber at the end of the corridor. She tried to sleep, but could not. At half-past seven she arose and started the business of the new day. The doctor came. She went to the registrar, and so on. Mr. May came. It was decided to keep open the theatre. He would find someone else for the piano, someone else to issue the tickets. In the afternoon arrived Frederick Houghton, James's cousin and nearest relative. He was a middle-aged, blonde, florid, church-going draper from Narborough, well-to-do and very bourgeois. He tried to talk to Alvina in a fatherly fashion, or a friendly or a helpful fashion, but Alvina could not listen to him. He got on her nerves. Hearing the gate bang, she rose and hurried to the window. She was in the drawing-room with her cousin to give the interview its proper air of solemnity. She saw Chicho rearing his yellow bicycle against the wall, and going with his head forward 
along the narrow, dark way of the backyard, to the scullery door. "'Excuse me a minute,' she said to her cousin, who looked up irritably as she left the room. She was just in time to open the door as Chicho tapped. She stood on the doorstep above him. He looked up, with a faint smile from under his black lashes. "'How nice of you to come,' she said. But her face was blanched and tired, without expression. Only her large eyes looked blue in their tiredness, as she glanced down at Chicho. He seemed to her far away. "'Madame asks, how is Mr. Houghton?' he said. "'Father, he died this morning,' she said quietly. "'He died!' exclaimed the Italian, a flash of fear and dismay going over his face. "'Yes, this morning.' She had neither tears nor emotion, but just looked down on him abstractedly from her height on the kitchen step. He dropped his eyes and looked at his feet. Then he lifted his eyes again and looked at her. She looked back at him, as from across a distance. So they watched each other, as strangers across a wide, abstract distance. He turned and looked down the dark yard, towards the gate where he could just see the pale grey tyre of his bicycle and the yellow mudguard. He seemed to be reflecting. If he went now, he went forever. Involuntarily he turned and lifted his face again towards Alvina, as if studying her curiously. She remained there on the doorstep, neutral, blanched, with wide, still, neutral eyes. She did not seem to see him. He studied her with alert, yellow, dusky, inscrutable eyes until she met his look. And then he gave the faintest gesture with his head, as of summons towards him. Her soul started and died in her, and again he gave the slight, almost imperceptible jerk of the head, backwards and sideways, as if summoning her towards him. His face, too, was closed and expressionless, but in his eyes, which kept hers, there was a dark flicker of ascendancy. He was going to triumph over her, she knew it, and her soul sank as if it sank out of her body, it sank away out of her body, left her there, powerless, soulless. And yet, as he turned, with his head stretched forward, to move away, as he glanced slightly over his shoulder, she stepped down from the step, down to his level, to follow him. He went, ducking along the dark yard, nearly to the gate. Near the gate, near his bicycle, was a corner made by a shed. Here he turned lingeringly to her, and she lingered in front of him. Her eyes were wide and neutral and submissive, with a new, awful submission, as if she had lost her soul. So she looked up at him like a victim. There was a faint smile in his eyes. He stretched forward over her. "'You love me?' "'Yes, yes,' he said, in a voice that seemed like a palpable contact on her. "'Yes,' she whispered, involuntarily, soulless, like a victim. He put his arm round her, subtly, and lifted her. "'Yes,' he re-echoed, almost mocking in his triumph. "'Yes, yes!' And smiling, he kissed her, delicately, with a certain finesse of knowledge. She moaned in spirit, in his arms, felt herself dead, dead, and he kissed her with a finesse, a passionate finesse, which seemed like coals of fire on her head. They heard footsteps. Miss Pinnegar was coming to look for her. Chicho set her down, looked long into her eyes, inscrutably, smiling, and said, "'I come to-morrow.' 
with which he ducked and ran out of the yard, picking up his bicycle like a feather, and, taking no notice of Miss Pinnegar, letting the yard door bang to behind him. "'Alvina!' said Miss Pinnegar. But Alvina did not answer. She turned, slipped past, ran indoors and upstairs, to the little bare bedroom she had made her own. She locked the door and kneeled down on the floor, bowing down her head to her knees in a paroxysm on the floor, in a paroxysm because she loved him. She doubled herself up in a paroxysm on her knees on the floor because she loved him. It was far more like pain, like agony, than like joy. She swayed herself to and fro in a paroxysm of unbearable sensation because she loved him. Miss Pinnegar came and knocked at the door. Alvina! Alvina! Oh, you are there! Whatever are you doing? Aren't you coming down to speak to your cousin? Soon, said Alvina. And taking a pillow from the bed, she crushed it against herself and swayed herself unconsciously, in her orgasm of unbearable feeling. Right in her bowels she felt it, the terrible, unbearable feeling. How could she bear it? She crouched over until she became still. A moment of stillness seemed to cover her like sleep, an eternity of sleep in that one second. Then she roused and got up. She went to the mirror, still, evanescent, and tidied her hair, smoothed her face. She was so still, so remote, she felt that nothing, nothing could ever touch her. And so she went downstairs to that horrible cousin of her father's. She seemed so intangible, remote and virginal, that her cousin and Miss Pinnegar both failed to make anything of her. She answered their questions simply, but did not talk. They talked to each other, and at last the cousin went away with a profound dislike of Miss Alvina. She did not notice. She was only glad he was gone, and she went about for the rest of the day elusive and vague. She slept deeply that night, without dreams. The next day was Saturday. It came with a great storm of wind and rain and hail, of fury. Alvina looked out in dismay. She knew Chicho would not be able to come. He could not cycle, and it was impossible to get by train and return the same day. She was almost relieved. She was relieved by the intermission of fate. She was thankful for the day of neutrality. In the early afternoon came a telegram. Coming both tomorrow morning, deepest sympathy, madame. Tomorrow was Sunday and the funeral was in the afternoon. Alvina felt a burning inside her, thinking of Chicho. She winced, and yet she wanted him to come. Terribly she wanted him to come. She showed the telegram to Miss Pinnegar. "'Good gracious,' said the weary Miss Pinnegar. "'Fancy those people. And I warrant they'll want to be at the funeral. As if he was anything to them.' "'I think it's very nice of her,' said Alvina. "'Oh, well,' said Miss Pinnegar, "'if you think so.' I don't fancy he would have wanted such people following myself. And what does she mean by both? Who's the other? Miss Pinnegar looked sharply at Alvina. Chicho, said Alvina. The Italian? Why, goodness me, what's he coming for? I can't make you out, Alvina. Is that his name, Chicho? I never heard such a name. Doesn't sound like a name at all to me. There won't be room for them in the cabs. We'll order another. More expense. I never knew such impertinent people. But Alvina did not hear her. On the next morning she dressed herself carefully in her new dress. It was black voile. Carefully she did her hair. 
Chicho and Madame were coming. The thought of Chicho made her shudder. She hung about, waiting. Luckily none of the funeral guests would arrive till after one o'clock. Alvina sat listless, musing, by the fire in the drawing-room. She left everything now to Miss Pinnegar and Mrs. Rowlings. Miss Pinnegar, red-eyed and yellow-skinned, was irritable beyond words. It was nearly midday when Alvina heard the gate. She hurried to open the front door. Madame was in her little black hat and her black-spotted veil. Chicho, in a black overcoat, was closing the yard door behind her. "'Oh, my dear girl!' Madame cried, trotting forward with outstretched black kid hands, one of which held an umbrella. "'I am so shocked! I am so shocked to hear of your poor father! Am I to believe it? Am I really? No, I can't!' She lifted her veil, kissed Alvina and dabbed her eyes. Chicho came up the steps. He took off his hat to Alvina, smiled slightly as he passed her. He looked rather pale, constrained. She closed the door and ushered them into the drawing-room. Madame looked round like a bird, examining the room and the furniture. She was evidently a little impressed, but all the time she was uttering her condolences. "'Tell me, poor girl, how it happened?' "'There isn't much to tell,' said Alvina, and she gave the brief account of James's illness and death. "'Worn out, worn out,' Madame said, nodding slowly up and down. Her black veil, pushed up, sagged over her brows like a mourning band. "'You cannot afford to waste the stamina. Uh, and will you keep on the theatre with Mr. May?' Chicho was sitting, looking towards the fire. His presence made Alvina tremble. She noticed how the fine black hair of his head showed no parting at all. It just grew like a close cap and was pushed aside at the forehead. Sometimes he looked at her as Madame talked, and again looked at her, and looked away. At last Madame came to a halt. There was a long pause. "'You will stay to the funeral?' "'Oh, my dear, we shall be too much.' "'No,' said Alvina, "'I have arranged for you.' "'There, you think of everything. But I will not come. Not Chicho. He will not trouble you.' Chicho looked up at Alvina. I should like him to come, said Alvina simply. But a deep flush began to mount her face. She did not know where it came from. She felt so cold, and she wanted to cry. Madame watched her closely. Siamo di accordo, came the voice of Ciccio. Alvina and Madame both looked at him. He sat constrained, with his face averted, his eyes dropped but smiling. Madame looked closely at Alvina. "'Is it true what he says?' she asked. "'I don't understand him,' said Alvina. "'I don't understand what he said. "'That you have agreed with him.' Madame and Chicho both watched Alvina as she sat in her new black dress. Her eyes involuntarily turned to his. "'I don't know,' she said vaguely. "'Have I?' And she looked at him. Madame kept silence for some moments. Then she said gravely, "'Well, yes, well,' she looked from one to another. "'Well, there is a lot to consider, but if you have decided—' Neither of them answered. Madame suddenly rose and went to Alvina. She kissed her on either cheek. "'I shall protect you,' she said. Then she returned to her seat. "'What have you said to Miss Ofton?' she said suddenly, to Chicho, tackling him direct and speaking coldly. He looked at Madame with a faint, derisive smile. Then he turned to Alvina. She bent her head and blushed. "'Speak, then,' 
said Madame. "'You have a reason?' She seemed mistrustful of him. But he turned aside his face, and refused to speak, sitting as if he were unaware of Madame's presence. "'Oh, well,' said Madame, "'I shall be there, signorino.' She spoke with a half-playful threat. Chicho curled his lip. "'You do not know him yet,' she said, turning to Alvina. "'I know that,' said Alvina, offended. Then she added, "'Wouldn't you like to take off your hat?' "'If you truly wish me to stay,' said Madame. "'Yes, please do. "'And will you hang your coat in the hall?' she said to Chicho. "'Oh,' said Madame roughly, "'he will not stay to eat. "'He will go out to somewhere.' Alvina looked at him. "'Would you rather?' she said. He looked at her with sardonic yellow eyes. "'If you want,' he said, the awkward, derisive smile curling his lips and showing his teeth. She had a moment of sheer panic. Was he just stupid and bestial? The thought went clean through her. His yellow eyes watched her sardonically. It was the clean modelling of his dark, other-world face that decided her, for it sent the deep spasm across her. "'I'd like you to stay,' she said. A smile of triumph went over his face. Madame watched him stonily as she stood beside her chair, one hand lightly balanced on her hip. Alvina was reminded of Kishwagin, but even in Madame's stony mistrust there was an element of attraction towards him. He had taken his cigarette-case from his pocket. "'On ne fume pas dans le salon,' said Madame brutally. "'Will you put your coat in the passage, and do smoke if you wish?' said Alvina. He rose to his feet and took off his overcoat. His face was obstinate and mocking. He was rather floridly dressed, though in black, and wore boots of black patent leather with tan uppers. Handsome he was, but undeniably in bad taste. The silver ring was still on his finger, and his close, fine, unparted hair went badly with smart English clothes. He looked common. Alvina confessed it, and her heart sank. But what was she to do? He evidently was not happy. Obstinacy made him stick out the situation. Alvina and Madame went upstairs. Madame wanted to see the dead James. She looked at his frail, handsome, ethereal face, and crossed herself as she wept. Un bel homme, cependant, she whispered. Moi un jour. C'est trop fort, voyez. And she sniggered with fear and sobs. They went down to Alvina's bare room. Madame glanced round as she did in every room she entered. "'This was father's bedroom,' said Alvina. "'The other was mine. He wouldn't have it anything but like this, bare.' "'Nature of a monk, a hermit,' whispered Madame. "'Who would have thought it? Ah, the men, the men!' And she unpinned her hat and patted her hair before the small mirror, into which she had to peep to see herself. Alvina stood waiting. "'And now,' whispered Madame, suddenly turning, what about this Chicho, eh? It was ridiculous that she would not raise her voice above a whisper upstairs there, but so it was. She scrutinized Alvina with her eyes of bright black glass. Alvina looked back at her, but did not know what to say. What about him, eh? Will you marry him? Why will you? I suppose because I like him, said Alvina, flushing. Madame made a little grimace. Oh, yes, she whispered, with a contemptuous mouth. Oh, yes, because you like him, but you know nothing of him, nothing. How can you like him not knowing him? He may be a real bad character. How would you like him then? He isn't, is he? said Alvina. I don't know. 
I don't know. He may be. Even I, I do not know him. No, though he has been with me for three years. What is he? He is a man of the people, a boatman, a labourer, an artist's model. He sticks to nothing. How old is he? asked Alvina. He is twenty-five, a boy only. And you? You are older. Thirty, confessed Alvina. Thirty. Well, now, so much difference. How can you trust him? How can you? Why does he want to marry you? Why? I don't know, said Alvina. No, and I don't know. But I know something of these Italian men, who are labourers in every country, just labourers and undermen always, always down, down, down. And Madame pressed her spread palms downwards. And so, when they have a chance to come up, she raised her hand with a spring. They are very conceited, and they take their chance. He will want to rise by you, and you will go down with him. That is how it is. I have seen it before. Yes, more than one time. But, said Alvina, laughing ruefully, he can't rise much because of me, can he? How not? How not? In the first place, you are English, and he thinks to rise by that. Then you are not of the lower class, you are of the higher class, the class of the masters, such as employ Chicho and men like him. How will he not rise in the world by you? Yes, he will rise very much. Or he will draw you down, down. Yes, one or another. And then he thinks that now you have money, now your father is dead. Here Madame glanced apprehensively at the closed door. And they all like money. Yes, very much. All Italians. Do they? said Alvina, scared. I'm sure there won't be any money. I'm sure father is in debt. What? You think? Do you? Really? Oh, poor Miss Ofton. Well, and will you tell Chicho that? Eh? Yeah? Yes, certainly, if it matters, said poor Alvina. Of course it matters. Of course it matters very much. It matters to him, because he will not have much. He saves, 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 as they all do, to go back to Italy and buy a piece of land and if he has you it will cost him much more he cannot continue with nachakitoara all will be much more difficult oh i will tell him in time said alvina pale at the lips you will tell him yes that is better and then you will see but he is obstinate as a mule and if he will still have you then you must think can you live in england as the wife of a labouring man dirty italian as they all say it is serious it is not pleasant for you who have not known it i also have not known it but i have seen alvina watched with wide troubled eyes while madame darted looks as from bright deep black glass yes said alvina i should hate being a labourer's wife in a nasty little house in a street in a house cried madame it would not be in a house. They live many together in one house. It would be two rooms, or even one room, in another house with many people, not quite clean, you see. I couldn't stand that, she said, finally. No, madame nodded approval. No, you could not. They live in a bad way, the Italians. 
They do not know the English home, never. They don't like it. Nor do they know the Swiss clean and proper house. No, they don't understand. They run into their holes to sleep or to shelter, and that is all. The same in Italy, said Alvina. Even more, because there it is sunny very often. And you don't need a house, said Alvina. I should like that. Yes, it is nice, but you don't know the life, and you would be alone with people like animals. And if you go to Italy, he will beat you. He will beat you. If I let him, said Alvina. But you can't help it, away there from everybody. Nobody will help you. If you're a wife in Italy, nobody will help you. You are his property. When you marry by Italian law, it is not like England. There is no divorce in Italy. And if he beats you, you are helpless. But why should he beat me, said Alvina? Why should he want to? They do. They are so jealous. And then they go into their ungovernable tempers. Horrible tempers. Only when they are provoked, said Alvina, thinking of Max. Yes, but you will not know what provokes him. Who can say when he will be provoked? And then he beats you. There seemed to be a gathering triumph in Madame's bright black eyes. Alvina looked at her and turned to the door. At any rate, I know now, she said, in rather a flat voice. And it is true, it is all of it true, whispered Madame vindictively. Alvina wanted to run from her. I must go to the kitchen, she said. Shall we go down? Alvina did not go into the drawing-room with Madame. She was too much upset, and she had almost a horror of seeing Chicho at that moment. Miss Pinnegar, her face stained carmine by the fire, was helping Mrs. Rowlings with the dinner. "'Are they both staying or only one?' she said tartly. "'Both,' said Alvina, busying herself with the gravy, to hide her distress and confusion. "'The man as well,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'What does the woman want to bring him for? "'I'm sure I don't know what your father would say.' a common show-fellow, looks what he is, and staying to dinner. Miss Pinnegar was thoroughly out of temper as she tried the potatoes. Alvina set the table. Then she went to the drawing-room. "'Will you come to dinner?' she said to her two guests. Chicho rose, threw his cigarette into the fire, and looked round. Outside was a faint, watery sunshine, but at least it was out of doors. He felt himself imprisoned, and out of his element. He had an irresistible impulse to go. When he got into the hall he laid his hand on his hat. The stupid, constrained smile was on his face. "'I'll go now,' he said. "'We've set the table for you,' said Alvina. "'Stop now, since you have stopped for so long,' said Madame, darting her black looks at him. But he hurried on his coat, looking stupid. Madame lifted her eyebrows disdainfully. "'This is polite behaviour, she said, sarcastically. Alvina stood at a loss. "'You return to the funeral?' said Madame coldly. He shook his head. "'When you are ready to go,' he said. "'At four o'clock,' said Madame, "'when the funeral has come home. Then we shall be in time for the train.' He nodded, smiled stupidly, opened the door, and went. "'This is just like him to be so—so—' Madame could not express herself as she walked down to the kitchen. "'Miss Pinnegar, this is Madame,' said Alvina. "'How do you do?' said Miss Pinnegar, a little distant and condescending. Madame eyed her keenly. "'Where is the man? I don't know his name,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'He wouldn't stay,' said Alvina. "'What is his name, Madame?' "'Marasca. Uh, Francesco. Francesco Marasca. 
Neapolitan. Marasca, echoed Alvina. It has a bad sound, a sound of a bad augury, bad sign, said Madame. Marasca. She shook her head at the taste of the syllables. Why do you think so, said Alvina? Do you think there is a meaning in sounds, goodness and badness? Yes, said Madame, certainly. Some sounds are good, they are for life, for creating, and some sounds are bad, they are for destroying. Marasca. That is bad, like swearing. But what sort of badness? What does it do? said Alvina. What does it do? It sends life down, down, instead of lifting it up. Why should things always go up? Why should life always go up? said Alvina. I don't know, said Madame, cutting her meat quickly. There was a pause. And what about other names? interrupted Miss Pinnegar, a little lofty. What about Houghton, for example? Madame put down her fork, but kept her knife in her hand. She looked across the room, not at Miss Pinnegar. Houghton, Houghton, she said. When it is said, it has a sound against, that is, against the neighbour, against humanity. But when it is written Houghton, then it is different. It is for. It is always pronounced Houghton, said Miss Pinnegar. By us, said Alvina. We ought to know, said Miss Pinnegar. Madame turned to look at the unhappy, elderly woman. You are a relative of the family, she said. No, not a relative, but I've been here many years, said Miss Pinnegar. Oh, yes, said Madame. Miss Pinnegar was frightfully affronted. The meal, with the three women at table, passed painfully. Miss Pinnegar rose to go upstairs and weep. She felt very forlorn. Alvina rose to wipe the dishes, hastily, because the funeral guests would all be coming. Madame went into the drawing-room to smoke her sly cigarette. Mr. May was the first to turn up for the lugubrious affair, very tight and tailored, but a little extinguished, all in black. He never wore black and was very unhappy in it, being almost morbidly sensitive to the impression the colour made on him. He was set to entertain Madame. She did not pretend distress, but sat, black-eyed and watchful, very much her business self. "'What about the theatre? Will it go on?' she asked. "'Well, I don't know. I, I don't know Miss Houghton's intentions,' said Mr. May. He was a little stilted to-day. "'It's hers?' said Madame. "'Why, as far as I understand. And if she wants to sell out?' Mr. May spread his hands and looked dismal, but distant. "'You should form a company and carry on,' said Madame. Mr. May looked even more distant, drawing himself up in an odd fashion, so that he looked as if he were trussed. But Madame's shrewd black eyes and busy mind did not let him off. "'Buy Miss Houghton out,' said Madame shrewdly. "'Of course,' said Mr. May. "'Miss Houghton herself must decide.' "'Oh, sure. You—are you married?' "'Yes.' "'Your wife here?' "'My wife is in London.' "'And children?' A daughter. Madame slowly nodded her head up and down, as if she put thousands of two and twos together. "'You think there will be much to come to Miss Houghton? she said. "'Do you mean property? I really can't say. I haven't inquired. "'No, but you have a good idea, eh?' "'I'm afraid I haven't.' "'No. Well, it won't be much, then.' "'Really, I don't know. I should say, not a large fortune.' No, eh, Madame kept him fixed with her black eyes. 
Do you think the other one will get anything? The other one? queried Mr. May, with an uprising cadence. Madame nodded slightly towards the kitchen. The old one, the Miss... Miss Pin... Pinny, what you call her? Miss Pinnegar, the manageress of the work-girls? Really, I don't know at all. Mr. May was most freezing. Aha! Aha! mused Madame quietly. Then she asked, Which work-girls do you say? And she listened astutely to Mr. May's forced account of the workroom upstairs, extorting all the details she desired to gather. Then there was a pause. Madame glanced round the room. Nice house, she said. Is it their own? So I believe. Again Madame nodded sagely. Debts, perhaps, eh? Morgage? And she looked slyly sardonic. Really? said Mr. May, bouncing to his feet. Do you mind if I go to speak to Mrs. Rowlings? Oh, no. Go along, said Madame. And Mr. May skipped out in a temper. Madame was left alone in her comfortable chair, studying details of the room and making accounts in her own mind, until the actual funeral guests began to arrive. And then she had the satisfaction of sizing them up. Several arrived with wreaths. The coffin had been carried down and laid in the small sitting-room, Mrs. Houghton's sitting-room. It was covered with white wreaths and streamers of purple ribbon. There was a crush and a confusion. And then at last the hearse and the cabs had arrived. The coffin was carried out. Alvina followed on the arm of her father's cousin, whom she disliked. Miss Pinnegar marshalled the other mourners. It was a wretched business. But it was a great funeral. There were nine cabs, besides the hearse. Woodhouse had revived its ancient respect for the house of Houghton. A posse of minor tradesmen followed the cabs, all in black and with black gloves. The richer tradesmen sat in the cabs. Poor Alvina, this was the only day in all her life when she was the centre of public attention. For once every eye was upon her, every mind was thinking about her. Poor Alvina, said every member of the Woodhouse, middle class. Poor Alvina Houghton, said every collier's wife. Poor thing, left alone, and hardly a penny to bless herself with. Lucky if she's not left with a pile of debts. James Houghton ran through some money in his day. Aye, if she had her right she'd be a rich woman. Why, her mother brought three or four thousands with her. Aye, but James sank it all in Throttle Apney and Klondike and the Endeavour. Well, he was his own worst enemy. He paid his way. I'm not so sure about that. Look how he served his wife, and now Alvina. I'm not so sure he was his own worst enemy. He was bad enough enemy to his own flesh and blood. Ah, well, he'll spend no more money anyhow. No, he went sudden, didn't he? But he was getting very frail, if you noticed. Oh, yes. Why, he fair seemed to totter down to Lumley. Do you reckon as that place pays its way? What, the endeavour? They say it does. They say it makes a nice bit. Well, it's mostly pretty full. Ah, it is. Perhaps it won't be now. Mr. Houghton's gone. Perhaps not. I wonder if he will leave much. I'm sure he won't. Everything he's got's mortgaged up to the hilt. He'll leave debts. You see if he doesn't. What is she going to do, then? She'll have to go out to Manchester House, her and Miss Pinnegar. Wonder what she'll do. Perhaps she'll take up that nursing. She never made much of that, did she? And spent a sight of money on her training, they say. She's a bit like a father in the business line, all flukes. Pity some nice young man doesn't turn up and marry her. I don't know. She doesn't seem to hook on, does she? 
Why, she's never had a proper boy. They make out she was engaged once. Aye, but nobody ever saw him, and it was off as soon as it was on. Can you remember she went with Albert Whittam for a bit? Did she? No, I never knew. When was that? Why, when he was at Oxford, you know, learning for his headmaster's place. Why didn't she marry him, then? Perhaps he never asked her. Aye, there's that to it. She'd have looked down her nose at him, time's gone by. Aye, but that's all over, my boy. She'd snap at anybody now. Look how she carries on with that manager. Why, that's something awful. Have you ever watched her in the cinema? She never lets him alone, and it's anybody alike. Oh, she doesn't respect herself, I don't consider. No girl who respected herself would go on as she does, throwing herself at every fella's head. Does she, though? Aye, any performer or anybody. She's a tidy age, though. She's not much chance of getting off. How old do you reckon she is? Must be well over thirty. You never say. Well, she looks it. She does beguile, a dragged old maid. Oh, but she spritles up a bit sometimes. Aye, when she thinks she's hooked on to somebody. I wonder why she never did take. It's funny. Oh, she was too high and mighty before, and now it's too late. Nobody wants her. And she's got no relations to go to either, has she? No, that's her father's cousin who she's walking with. Look, they're coming. He's a fine-looking man, isn't he? You'd have thought they'd have buried Miss Frost beside Mrs. Houghton. You would, wouldn't you? I should think Alvina will lie by Miss Frost. They say the grave was made for both of them. Aye, she was a lot more of a mother to her than her own mother. She was good to them. Miss Frost was. Alvina thought the world of her. That's her stone, look, down there. Not a very grand one, considering. No, it isn't. Look, there's room for Alvina's name underneath. Shh! Alvina had sat back in the cab and watched from her obscurity the many faces on the street, so familiar, so familiar, familiar as her own face. And now she seemed to see them from a great distance, out of her darkness. Her big cousin sat opposite her. How she disliked his presence! In chapel she cried, thinking of her mother, and Miss Frost, and her father. She felt so desolate. It all seemed so empty. Bitterly she cried, when she bent down during the prayer, and her crying started Miss Pinnegar, who cried almost as bitterly. It was all rather horrible, the afterwards, the horrible afterwards. There was the slow progress to the cemetery. It was a dull, cold day. Alvina shivered as she stood on the bleak hillside, by the open grave. Her coat did not seem warm enough. Her old black sealskin furs were not much protection. The minister stood on the plank by the grave, and she stood near, watching the white flowers blowing in the cold wind. She had watched them for her mother, and for Miss Frost. She felt a sudden clinging to Miss Pinnegar. Yet they would have to part. Miss Pinnegar had been so fond of her father, in a quaint, reserved way. Poor Miss Pinnegar, that was all life had offered her. Well, after all, it had been a home and a home life, to which home and home life Alvina now clung with a desperate yearning, knowing inevitably she was going to lose it, now her father was gone. Strange that he was gone, but he was weary, worn very thin and weary. He had lived his day. How different it all was now, at his death, from the time when Alvina knew him as a little child, and thought him such a fine gentleman. You live and learn, and lose. For one moment she looked at Madame, who was shuddering with cold, her face hidden behind her black spotted veil. But Madame seemed immensely remote, so unreal, and Chicho, 
What was his name? She could not think of it. What was it? She tried to think of Madame's slow enunciation. Marasca, Maraschino, Marasha, Maraschino. What was a Maraschino? Where had she heard it? Cudgelling her brains, she remembered the doctors and the suppers after the theatre. And Maraschino? Why, that was the favourite white liqueur of the innocent Dr. Young. She could remember even now the way he seemed to smack his lips, saying the word maraschino. Yet she did not think much of it. Hot, bitterish stuff, nothing. Not like green chartreuse, which Dr. James gave her. Maraschino, yes, that was it. Made from cherries. Well, Chicho's name was nearly the same. But she supposed Italian words were a good deal like this. Chicho de Marasca, the bitter cherry, was standing on the edge of the crowd, looking on. He had no connection whatever with the proceedings, stood outside, self-conscious, uncomfortable, bitten by the wind and hating the people who stared at him. He saw the trim, plump figure of Madame, like some trim, plump partridge among a flock of barnyard fowls, and he depended on her presence. Without her he would have felt too horribly uncomfortable on that raw hillside. She and he were in some way allied. But these others, how alien and uncouth he felt them! Impressed by their fine clothes, the English working classes were none the less barbarians to him, uncivilised, just as he was to them an uncivilised animal. Uncouth, they seemed to him, all raw angles and harshness like their own weather. Not that he thought about them, but he felt it in his flesh, the harshness and discomfort of them. And Alvina was one of them. As she stood there by the grave, pale and pinched and reserved-looking, she was of a piece with the hideous, cold-grey discomfort of the whole scene. Never had anything been more uncongenial to him. He was dying to get away, to clear out. That was all he wanted. Only some southern obstinacy made him watch, from the duskiness of his face, the pale, reserved girl at the grave. Perhaps he even disliked her at that time, but he watched in his dislike. When the ceremony was over and the mourners turned away to go back to the cabs, Madame pressed forward to Alvina. "'I shall say good-bye now, Miss Ofton. We must go to the station for the train. And thank you, thank you. Good-bye.' But Alvina looked round. "'Chicho is there. I see him. We must catch the train. Oh, but won't you drive? Won't you ask Chicho to drive with you in the cab? Where is he? Madame pointed him out as he hung back among the graves, his black hat cocked a little on one side. He was watching. Alvina broke away from her cousin and went to him. Madame is going to drive to the station, she said. She wants you to get in with her. He looked round at the cabs. All right, he said, and he picked his way across the graves to Madame following Alvina. End of chapter 9, part 1 Read by Tony Foster